The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. All right, well, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that our times are in your hands and that you love us, you take care of us, you oversee all of the details of our life. Father, we thank you for the callings that you've given to us callings to help other people, and we pray, Father, that you would use this time to help equip us to better care for others, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I did a session earlier today called, um, Does God Care How I Feel?, and the the focus of that uh, workshop was to point out the fact that as biblical counselors, we have to uh, be aware that the emotions actually do play a very important role in counseling. And unfortunately, sometimes our tendency has been to, um, to minimize or downplay the importance of the emotions. And uh, they have some sort of faulty thinking at times, uh, for instance, um, thinking that... Um, God's word never commands us to change or never tells us how to feel. I would argue that that is is profoundly mistaken. And so what we did in that previous time is that we laid a foundation. And what I did is I pointed out that in the Bible, the character of God demonstrates a, a full range of emotion. And God is always perfect and holy in his emotion. And then, uh, then we talked about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly reflects the Father. He is the exact representation of, of the Father's nature. Um, Jesus could say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so what we have in Jesus is, is the uh, outshining of God's glory. And so Jesus Christ is, is very God of very God, but he also is man as man ought to be. And so Jesus is perfect humanity, sinless humanity. And so what we have in the Son of God is a perfect reflection of the Father and then also a perfect demonstration of humanity, complete sinless humanity. And what we see in Jesus is we see the full range of human emotion. We see anger and grief and joy and sadness. We see the whole entire range. And so what that tells us is that Jesus Christ actually displays for us the perfect emotional life, right? Then we pointed out one last uh, part of the foundation, which is the image of God. Uh, Since God has perfect and holy emotion and we're made in his image, and since Jesus perfectly imaged God and had emotions and was the perfect image bearer, um, that is a, um, at least bare minimum, uh, just in terms of implying that our emotions are actually a part of what it means to be a human being made in the image and likeness of God. Now, we also pointed out that the Bible commands certain emotions, right? I mean, the Bible actually tells us how to feel. The Bible tells us that we're to have joy. The Bible tells us we're to forgive from the heart, so on and so forth. And the conclusion was that, yes, indeed, God does care how we feel. Now, the problem, as we pointed out, is that 
Um, sin has corrupted every faculty of our being, mind, will, and emotion. And so, because of that fundamental corruption, um, as, as people uh, in a fallen condition, our emotions are a part of us that need to be sanctified. And so what my appeal was in that first session was in our biblical counseling, we cannot ignore the emotions. We actually need to do our best to deal with the emotions as an inherent part of that person that we are counseling. We pointed out that the emotions can be um, a great impediment to progress, but also a great impetus or catalyst to lasting change. And now that that brings us to, uh, in a sense, sort of the application of that foundational workshop, which is helping people handle their emotions through truth. And what we're, what we're going to do in, in our time together is um, I'm just going gonna, gonna to sketch out in, in, in pretty broad terms uh, what I think are, 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 in a sense, big picture or framework type things that will then help us to then start to apply this uh, to our particular situations. And let me begin first by saying that we must be committed to the priority of the truth, all right? So as, as we're talking about trying to help people handle their emotions, we need to remember that we are emphasizing here the priority of truth. And the reason I think that that is so important is because the, the emotions are related to our thinking and our perceiving, our evaluating and our valuing, all right? So... Um, our emotions actually are an indicator. This is why uh, in, in trying to diagnose in biblical counseling, trying to diagnose what's going on in the emotions is so important because those emotions oftentimes betray what's going on inside the heart. They are expressing what we value. All right. So there is a sense in which we want to pay close attention to those things and then we need to realize that what is happening as we express emotion, sometimes we feel like we're just victims of our emotion. That is, that's, I don't think that that's true. I think that our emotions actually respond, sometimes immediately, to our perceptions and the way that we think. And so if, if, if emotions are related to thinking, perceiving, evaluating, and valuing, then um, we need to understand that the way that we deal with them begins with truth, all right? We start with the truth. And so um, as we are um, thinking about these things, uh, one of the reasons why we often encounter, either in ourselves or in our counselees, quote, toxic emotion is because a person is not thinking biblically. Unbiblical thinking will in turn fuel unhealthy or even toxic emotions. And so wrong thinking leads to wrong feeling, whereas I think the corollary is true as well. Right thinking leads to right feeling. And if that's the case, then truth always has to come first. All right? So in diagnosing the sin, we cannot miss this connection. So... Um, I mentioned in the, I gave an example in the first uh, or the other session of a, 
of a woman that comes in, young woman, and she is bent on uh, leaving her husband and her children. She's going to go and live the life she wants to live. And she has, she has convinced herself that she is the most miserable person on the planet being married to this guy, being stuck with these kids, having to live in that house. All right? So this is, on the one hand, a thinking problem, but it is also profoundly a feeling problem. Just to get her to do the right thing, that is, don't leave your husband, stay with your kids, is actually not enough. There has to be something that goes beyond getting that external conformity of just doing the right action. Because unless you end up dealing with what's going on inside the heart, it's just a matter of time before she ultimately does what she feels like she wants to do. Okay? So, we need to diagnose the sin. We have to see that connection. Wrong thinking leads to wrong feeling. Now, I think sometimes it's not really all that simple all the time, is it? Sometimes wrong feeling can then in turn fuel wrong, think, uh, wrong thinking. So, um, you know, for instance, you're angry at somebody and you are absolutely convinced they did something wrong. They, they probably didn't, uh, but you're convinced that they did. And uh, the more that you think about this perceived wrong, the more anger you feel and the more anger you feel, the more convinced you are that they really did something. It becomes this really vicious, vicious cycle. And so when we're dealing with people, we need to remember we want the truth to be brought to bear, but we want it to be brought to bear in a way that goes beyond just merely cognitively putting it out there saying, this is the principle, this is the truth, this is what you're supposed to do. We actually have to think about how to get through to that person beyond just simply laying out, as it were, biblical precept. Take your, uh, take your Bibles and turn to uh, Second Thess- uh, 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, the Corinthians were, were, were pretty messed up. And uh, they were messed up in a lot of different ways. And Paul in 2 Corinthians, don't have time to go into the, the whole thing, but 2 Corinthians is really wonderful because Paul is um, responding to their positive response to his harsh letter that he refers to that he sent with Titus. And, um, and so he's really, he's pouring his heart out here. He's pouring his heart out. And notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So here's, here's what we need to understand, is that as we are trying to help people see the truth. One of the ways that we get beyond just this mere, I I understand cognitively what you're saying, one of the ways that we actually begin to get the truth into uh, the deeper part of that person's heart, a lot of it has to do 
with the way that we communicate it to them. Now, I understand that people have um, different counseling styles and different communication styles. And I'm not advocating a style or a methodology, but one of the things that I think that we need to understand and incorporate into our counseling is that as we are, as we are trying to convince somebody of the truth, that we use the truth in a way that it, it is communicated to them, not just my mouth to their brain, but heart to heart. A biblical counselor should be one who is willing to spend and be spent on behalf of the person that they're trying to communicate truth to. The person that comes to you is not just a project. The person that comes to you is made in the image and likeness of God and has a never-dying soul. And so listen to Paul's words. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, right? So Paul says, listen, I've told you the truth. I've told it to you openly. But notice, our heart is opened wide. Now I'm asking you open wide to us too. Now, why is that so important in communicating truth? It's because as we're trying to communicate truth to people, our emotions matter too. Okay. The counselor's emotions matter too. There's a great old book. I love old books by a guy named John Angel James called An Earnest Ministry, The Want of the Times. He was a uh, contemporary of Spurgeon's. And he wrote these words. He said, that man must be a stone and destitute of the ordinary feelings of humanity who can see another interested, active, and, and zealous person for his welfare while he himself remains inert and indifferent. Even the apathetic and indolent have been kindled into ardor and led to make efforts for themselves by solicitude manifested by others for their welfare. You see what he's saying? It actually, it's, it's really, I mean, it's kind of old English, but the idea is, is when you see somebody who cares about you and you see somebody who is earnestly appealing to you, and you see somebody that has a zeal for you, that is something that can be used by God to melt the heart. So biblical counselors have a priority on truth, even truth to deal with the emotions, but we ourselves need to make sure that we're communicating the truth that is not just simply sort of this, uh, you know, I flip a switch, talking head, I, um, I, I make the diagnosis, and now I start just... Uh, just start talking. Has it ever occurred to us, by the way, this is just a footnote, how many, how many of you told people in the course of counseling, you need to think about James chapter 1 and verse 19? How many of you use James 1, 19 regularly in counseling? Let everyone among you be what? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Do, do you get that? Quick to hear, slow to speak. Well, Actually, we don't take our own counsel very well on that sometimes, do we? 
We're actually really quick to, to speak, and then we speak a lot, and then we speak a lot more, and then when we think they're not getting it, we speak even more, and we speak even more because we have this idea, I'm disseminating information. God not only wants us to give the truth, but he wants us to communicate in a way that demonstrates that we really do care about that other person. In fact, God uses his word to transform people, that's for sure, but he also uses his servants who demonstrate a lively, active care for other people too. Who are you more likely to go back to? A person who you know really loves you, is earnest about your soul, and says a lot of good things but may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer? Or somebody who is well-read, very articulate, has all the right answers and can rattle them off to you in about 50 minutes and then you're done? Who are you going to go back to? you'll be willing to put up with a little less content and more love and affection (laughs) than you would the cold, clinical, sterile approach to disseminating truth. And so as as, as we try to help people handle their emotions through truth, we need to remember that the way that we communicate is an integral part of this. All right, secondly, truths for emotional stability. Now, there there are certain things that... um, in God's word that actually help people get um, what we're going to call uh, spiritual uh, equilibrium or spiritual balance, all right? Um, you know, in, the, in I think they still do this. I don't know anything about ships, but I know uh, ships need ballast, right? And so you fill up the uh, barrels of water, you put them in the, what, the hull or something, and it, it weighs it down so that, there's, so that there's ballast, right? Think about these truths as those truths that are designed to give emotional ballast to people. Okay? So if wrong thinking leads to wrong feeling, then the path to begin helping people uh, on, on the path of right feeling is to get them to start thinking correctly. There are some foundational issues that we need to, um, in a sense, in a broad way, help people with emotional ballast. And I'd say the first is, the, uh, the character of God. One of the most common reasons why people have, uh, let's say, emotional struggles is because oftentimes they, they forget who God is and what he is like. So the Bible tells us over and over again things like this. Um, Psalm 9.10, those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. You, you get that? Those who know your name. That is, that is those who know God's character. Those who know what God is like. Those who know God's uh, attributes put their faith in him. In other words, there's a direct correlation between the strength of my faith and my knowledge of who God is and what he is like. Daniel 11.32, those who know their God will be strong and do great exploits. This is eternal life, says Jesus, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so there is a sense in which one of the best things that we can do for people is to actually give them 
a, a, a more comprehensive view of who God is and what he is like. Consider using the attributes of God in the course of your counseling to help people gain emotional stability. Are the attributes of God relevant, for instance, to uh, fear? Absolutely. So, so what, what do you do? Um, you point people to who God is and what he is like. Why do you do that? Well, because that's, that's how God deals with us. Do not fear. Is fear, at least in part, an emotional problem? And the answer is yes. You suck emotion out of fear and you no longer have fear. You have something totally different. Do not fear. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will uphold you. I will, I will hold you with my righteous right hand. And so the point is, is that here's God and he's talking to a people who are fearful and anxious. And what does he do? He reminds them who he is, what he's like, and what he will do for them. The psalmist says, because I have set the Lord before me, I will never be shaken. When we think about trying to help people, we need to remember that one of the most foundational things we can do for them is to give them the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God, who he is, what he is like, is one of the most stabilizing realities in our life. It does, you can, you can take just about any attribute and you can directly apply it to people's emotional maladies. Whether it's God's sovereignty, whether it's God's faithfulness, whether it's God's mercy, whether it's God's power, God's wisdom, God's love, you name it, you can find an attribute that directly relates to something that people struggle with at a deeply emotional level. Give people a solid doctrine, theology, of God. Another truth that is um, um, consider a ballast truth is, uh, is justification. Justification. Um, I, don't have the, um, I don't have the quote with me. I read it the last hour. Um, a lady in our church who asked if she could start a theology study a number of years ago uh, we said yes, and she took a group of ladies for three years through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And uh, after completing that, she wrote me this wonderful email that I put in, in, in the book, um, with her permission, of course. And she talks about how she has an emotional stability because she has an understanding of theology, but not just theology as some sort of abstract reality, but theology as it brings together the strands of Scripture into a comprehensive whole. And she makes comments in there about how she used to feel depressed very frequently. Now, very infrequently does she get depressed. There's a stability, there's a strength, and there's a joy that she's never known before because of the, the theological truth that has become a foundation to her life. And so when we talk about... Um, Help people handle their emotions by giving them theology. You have to understand there's nothing more practical than giving people biblical doctrine. 
It's the most practical thing in all of life. There's nothing like it. So doctrine of God, doctrine of justification. You ever deal with somebody who, um, who suffers miserably from guilt and shame all the time? What we want to do in our culture is we want to, we want to attack the, um, the, the, the feelings of guilt and shame and deal with those as symptoms. If, if this person is a professing Christian, there is actually a fundamental flaw in their thinking when they feel guilt and shame if they've already put their trust in Jesus. Because the Bible tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that wrong thinking leads to feelings of guilt and shame. How do you deal with guilt and shame? You don't try to deal with it, you know, in some sort of psychological manner. You deal with it biblically by pointing this person to the fact, look, you need to understand, you feel bad about yourself. Well, you know what? There there probably is a lot to feel bad about. Don't whitewash that, right? So when the devil actually comes and, 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 and hurls false accu- or accusations against us, Luther used to talk like this. He'd say, you know, the devil comes and says, Martin Luther, you're a rotten man. You've done this and this and this. And Luther says, you're absolutely right, but so what? I have an advocate with the Father who's made an end to all my sin. So when we're dealing with people, we cannot undermine or, or, or minimize the importance of explaining to them, listen, that, 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 that thing that you did, maybe you're dealing with a person that had an abortion and they continually have this, this, this guilt that rises up. Every time a baby's born in the church, they feel as if, you know, that, that, that whole thing of I, I've killed my baby. You need to actually be able to take them to the doctrine of justification and say, listen, what you have to understand is that that was in fact a sin and it was a heinous sin, but it was for that very kind of thing that Jesus Christ was sent into the world and he died for it. And if he died for it, God has forgiven it. And so your sin has been placed on Christ. Christ paid the penalty for all of your sins, all of them. How many of your sins does the father remember? He tells you how many he remembers. He remembers them no more. And so you have been completely pardoned. And on top of that, God has clothed you in the righteousness of his own son. Now the Bible tells us that that brings us peace with God. Can peace with God deal with a falsely accusing conscience that brings guilt and shame? And the answer is, that's the only thing that will ultimately deal with an accusing conscience. Well, there are other things that are are ballast-type truths. Um, uh, Future glory, for instance. Um, How does Paul put our suffering in perspective with the glory that is to be revealed. Light and momentary affliction compared with what? The future weight of glory, right? Um, You know, one of our problems is that we don't have 
much of a doctrine of the future. Most people's doctrine of the future gets reduced to uh, rapture in seven years and then a thousand, and that's about the, it, the end of their doctrine of the future. And the reality is, is that for the Apostle Paul, he actually compared the now with the not yet and, and looked at the reality of this present suffering in light of what was coming in the future. And that future perspective put things in the present into a perspective which he was able then to deal with. Right? So oftentimes when people come to us, they are so, um, so immersed in their own present problems that they forget that as a child of God, God has promised them a future in which there will be no more tears. When was the last time you actually used heaven... Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, be callous and go, I don't know what you're complaining about. One of these days you're going to die and go to heaven. <laughs> now, of course, you, you might be tempted to say that, but that's not the, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actually getting people to look at the fact that as a child of God, you are an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ, and you have future glory awaiting you, and God actually intends that future weight of glory to impact the way that you view your present suffering. That's ballast for the soul, right? Now, let's press on a little bit. This is under the heading of Theology of Christian Experience in in your notes. Um, We need to help people understand that they live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Okay? Now, for the people that go to our church, they, they, I don't even have to say already and not yet, and they, they actually can just say it for me, because I'll go to, and they, they can read my mind, because this is just, I think it's New Testament theology, actually, the idea of the already and the not yet. And why is that important for counseling? Well, one of the things that the already and the not yet does is the already, of course, when we're talking about the already, we're talking about what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in, the, in, in his death, his burial, resurrection, and ascension. So what he's done is he has brought the age to come, all right, into this present age. Okay? So think about it. What, what marks the age to come? Resurrection marks the age to come. Jesus has brought resurrection into this present age. So um, anybody here raised up with Christ right now? Yeah, guess what? That's already. Okay? That's already. Um, but there's a not yet. Anybody have a glorified body yet? Look. <laughs> Brother, I am, I am exercising great self-control right now because um, <laughs> I see evidence to the contrary, okay? So, so what, what, what the already and the not yet does is, is it reminds us that there's a tension, right? Um, we are, John says, we are the children of God, but it has not yet appeared what we shall be. Right, So we have this already, that is the benefits of knowing Christ, being saved right now, but there is a not yet. 
oftentimes what we can end up doing that, that messes up our thinking and then gets us uh, in emotionally haywire uh, state is that we can start to expect too much of what God has only promised for the future right now. And if we don't have the reality that my life is a life that's lived in tension between having already been delivered from this present evil age and yet now having to continue an existence that is in the flesh, right? What what does Paul say? I've been crucified with Christ. That's already, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, that's also reality. How do I have to live it? I have to live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so there is a reality that I live in this tension in a sense between uh, D-Day and the final victory. And because of that, I have to be careful that I'm not expecting too much. Now, the corollary, of course, is true too, and that is don't expect too little. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit right now. You have eternal life right now. You have your sins forgiven right now. You have a relationship with God right now. And so there is a lot that we have in the already, but sometimes what happens is people start to think that, that, that somehow God has promised them their best life now. Now, I don't know where people would get ideas like this, you know, but the fact is, is that when you, we start expecting too much and start thinking unbiblically, we can start becoming angry with God. I mentioned in, in another session, I can't remember which one it, it was. I mean, I think it's Saturday, so what do I even know? I graduated with a guy from seminary in um, 1993 and uh, we went through school together and he uh, we were friends and he went his way had some really tough churches series of tough churches and after about a couple of years or so we've kind of lost touch with each other and about a year ago I get a call and he says hey um, you remember me I said you know of course I remember you he says "Uh, we're vacationing up at South Lake Tahoe he says, can I come and visit you? And I said, absolutely. We live 20 minutes from South Lake Tahoe. And um, it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible ordeal, but somebody has to do it. So he came to visit me, looked awful. We're exactly the same age. He looks at least 15, 20 years older than me. As he began to unfold all of his agony, genuine agony, not only because of really tough ministries, but some very, very difficult adoptive situations with, with children that had, had, had brought a tremendous amount of misery and pain into, his, into him and his wife's life. Um, as he sat there, my heart broke for this guy. My heart broke for him. But then he said this, I never thought serving God 
would be like this. Now, I'm a human being just like he is. And there's something about that that, that, that touches my heart. And I think about, you know, you, you, you devote your life to the Lord and you seek to serve him to the best of your ability. And, and um, you try to do what you think he wants you to do. If we don't have that foundational perspective that there really is a not yet, then we start thinking, what is God doing to me? No wonder he has so many enemies if he treats his friends this badly. Wrong thinking, thinking about too much, expecting too much, can lead to incredible disappointment and heartache. And what is it that actually inoculates us against that? It's understanding that we live this life by faith. And you don't know what kind of suffering is going to come into this life. And that's another thing, is that we, as Christians, we're called to suffer. We're called to suffer. And yet, what, what, is it, what is it about somebody that causes them to translate their suffering into um, God doesn't love me? What is it that causes people to translate their suffering into um, why is God doing this to me? I would suggest to you that what causes people to translate their suffering into those kinds of unbiblical questions is, is, is the fact that not only do they not understand God, not only do they not understand this present life, but they also don't, un, don't understand that it has been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name. Philippians 1, 29. There is, in fact, part and parcel of the Christian life, suffering. That is just part of it. And yet, if we don't have a theology of suffering, we end up translating it into unbiblical thinking that will ravage the emotions, making us bitter and angry with God. And, you know, you might disagree with this, but I don't think that it's ever right to be angry with God. And people will come in and tell me they're angry with God. And, you know, you want to be compassionate. You want to be sympathetic. But we also need to remind people who we're dealing with. In fact, it's kind of in vogue to be angry with God. Bad trend. Really bad trend. So we give people... We, we, we help people understand biblically. We give them this theological foundation of what Christian experience is, is, is like, what the Bible actually um, tells us Christian experience is going to be like. Jesus, Jesus never had like small print. He didn't have like fine print. Follow me, have eternal life, fine print. Take up your cross. It wasn't fine print. It was in the same size font as everything else. 
The Bible actually presents to us these realistic perspectives. We get off in our thinking and it turns our emotions upside down. Now, I'm going to ask a question. It was asked in the uh, Q&A earlier. People will say something like this. Um, What if I don't feel like it? So pick something. Love your husband, okay? But what if I don't feel like it? Um, Gather with God's people and worship, okay? But what if I don't feel like it? Right? I mean, we could go on and on, right? How many of you heard people say something like, well, I don't feel like it? So there's really kind of two ways that people go with this in terms of Christian experience. One is... Uh, it put in terms from a lady in the previous session, uh, fake it till you make it, okay? And the other is, well, don't do it because if you do it and you don't feel like it, you're actually being a hypocrite, okay? When we start talking to people about Christian experience and their emotions, we are going to find out that people will begin to then think in terms of, well, if I don't feel like it, then either I just do it. We'll talk about that in the morning. That is not what God wants you to do. You know, just do it regardless and leave, leave that, uh, you know, the feelings just out of it. That, that's not the way to go. You don't just fake it till you make it. But neither, neither do you turn around and say, well, I'm not going to go to church today because I don't feel like it. And if I went to church and didn't feel like it, I would just be a hypocrite. Here's what I tell people. Should you feel like it? Let's just just, just take loving your husband. I'm fond of this subject. Loving your husband. The wife says, "I I don't feel like loving my husband. Do we say... That's all right. We know him. Huh? No, you, you, don't, you don't say that to somebody. You don't go, that's all right. It's okay if you don't feel like loving him. Just, just act like you do. Is that, is that good counsel? That's not good counsel at all, is, is it? Should you love your husband? Yeah. I don't feel like it. Well, if you know you're supposed to do something and then you, you, you don't do it, the Bible has a category for that. Anybody know what that category is? It's called sin, right? <laughs> That's not hard. It's just sin. I, if I wake up on a Sunday morning and I say, I don't feel like going to church, guess what? That's a sin. Why is that a sin? Well, because... Uh, instead of me being just subject to my emotions, the Bible would have a much different perspective on it, right? The Bible would have a perspective that went something like this. Um, God is the great, glorious creator of all things, and he is absolutely, thoroughly worthy for you to gather with his people and render him praise and hear his word, and that is right and good. And if you don't feel like doing that, then there's something wrong with your heart, 
God has given you a husband. He may be difficult. He may be an instrument of sanctification in your life. But he has told you that you should love your husband and love your children. You should do these things. And if you, if you're, if you don't, you can't just say, well, I just don't feel like it. So we go, okay, well, that's a sin. So biblical counselors, what do you do? What do you tell people when they have sin in their life? What's the next step? You repent. You repent. And so what does that look like? It looks like actually confessing sin that I don't feel like it. Instead of saying, I can't help it, and so if I can't help it, God can't tell me what to do. That's that's normally, by the way, the connection that's made is that I can't help the way I feel. So if I can't help the way I feel, which, by the way, is a lie, but if I say I can't help the way I feel, then how in the world can I say then God can command the way that I feel? Well, first of all, you can help the way that you feel. And so if you don't feel like doing something that you should do or you don't feel like like um, uh, loving someone, you don't feel you own that as a sin. You confess it. Lord, I confess to you, I, I, my heart is not in the right place right now because I don't want to go with your people and worship you. Or my heart's not in the right place because I don't feel like loving the husband that you've given me. Or I don't feel like doing this or doing that. And I confess that as sin and I turn from that and I ask you to help me to, to please have right affections that are aligned by your word, and then you know what you do? Then you do the next thing. Which if if it's in the case of a Sunday morning, and you wake up and you don't feel like going to church, you confess it as sin, you repent of it, you ask God to change your heart, and then you get dressed and go to church. And what people find is that often the power comes in the doing. Don't, don't let counselees use not feeling like it as an excuse for not doing what they're supposed to do. Now, I've used more time on that than I wanted to, but I want to give you two Bible examples of handling the emotions through truth, all right? So here's the premise that we've been working with. The emotions are related to thinking, perceiving, evaluating, and valuing, right? And so I want to show you two in two places where we have Bible characters, okay? One prophet, one apostle who used truth to control, handle the emotions, all right? Because this is important in, in terms of our counseling because if we can show people this, then we can actually lead them into doing the same thing. And we're going to look at two famous passages, Lamentations chapter 3. And I've got to do this quickly, but I think that you'll get, um, you'll get the idea. Lamentations chapter 3. By the way, Lamentations is, uh, is an acrostic poem. It's, re- it's really an amazing thing. I think Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. It's an acrostic poem in Hebrew. What is the book about? Well, just think of the title. He is lamenting, right? It is one of the most heartbroken, sorrowful books in all of the Bible. And here is the heartbroken prophet. And what does he do? He writes a lengthy poem. Very interesting. 
So, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19. Okay. So, Jeremiah says, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Okay. So, he's talking about how his soul has been, um, has been so burdened by, by what? Well, by a fruitless ministry of warning people of coming judgment. His message, of course, pretty unpopular, telling the people of Judah, you need to submit to what God's going to do through the Babylonians. You submit to that as, as God's discipline. It will go well with us. But, and, of course, the false prophets were saying, hey, that's not how God works. We have the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah was totally unpopular. And so he's warned his people, loves his people. Read throughout the whole book, the confessions of Jeremiah, for instance. They're transparent. They're heart-rending. And so here's Jeremiah. He, the, by now, Jerusalem is, is uh, it, it just in rubble. It's been razed to the ground. The temple is... Um, 586, temples destroyed. Remember my affliction, my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. You can feel the emotion of Jeremiah's um, affliction. He says, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. It's really interesting language. My soul is bowed down within me. The soul is the immaterial part of us, but yet Jeremiah is in so much anguish that he actually looks at his soul as if he's been punched in the solar plexus of the soul. He's as miserable as a man can be. He's as downcast as a man can be. He is in despair. He is in anguish. And there is, you, you would look at him and you say, what in the world could help a man who was under such an incredibly emotional burden described in these words? And here's what helps him. Verse 21, this I recall to my what? Mind. Don't miss the significance of that. Here I am in utter and complete anguish, and you know what I do? I start to think differently. This I recall to mind. What does he recall to mind? Therefore, I have hope. Hope. Have you ever seen somebody go from the depth of despair to having some hope? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever been there? How, how much hope do you need to start to pull you out of despair? Do you need a totally equivalent amount of hope to despair? Mm -mm. You just need just a little bit, right? So here's Jeremiah. Think about this in counseling. What is one of the most significant things we can do for people? Give them hope. How do you give them hope? How do you rescue them from their emotional morass of despair and anxiety? How do you do it? You don't do it through psychotherapy. You do it through truth. Look at what he says. I recall this to mind, therefore I have hope. What does he recall to mind? Yahweh's 
Loving kindnesses, notice the plural, indeed, never cease. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Those two verses, very famous verses, but notice the context that they're in. This is how Jeremiah was rescued from the depth of despair. He brought something that was true about God to mind, and as he brought something true about God to mind, it revived hope in his heart. Now, if you look at that... Um, God's um, loving kindnesses, his covenant, loyal, uh, covenant loyalty and love, did it look like covenant love as he saw Jerusalem destroyed? Does that look like covenant love? It, it does not look like covenant love at all. As Jeremiah could actually probably see... Um, thousands of dead bodies through Jerusalem, did that look like his compassion never fails? Is that what it looked like? No, it didn't look like that. What about mercies new every morning? When he woke up that morning, did God's mercies seem new to him? No. Here, here's, here's the amazing thing about the life of faith. We believe God in spite of what we see. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. What Jeremiah could see by sight would have, would have made the most stalwart, and he was downcast, what he brought to mind was truth about God and that truth about God revived his hope and brought him out of that morass of despair. Okay. That is powerful when you're dealing with somebody that thinks, my life is done. I don't have I don't have anything to live for. I feel so afflicted. What's the best thing we can do for them? Help them get a grip by giving them hope through truth. Truth about God. Notice Jeremiah doesn't say, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. I'm worth it. Right? It has nothing to do with Jeremiah at that point, does it? It has everything to do with God. Right? There, there's one other example, and we're like just about out of time, but we started late, so I have three minutes. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Let me just, I'm just going to just point this out really fast. Paul says, chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, notice these words, affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Okay. That is bad off. Okay. 
By the way, this is the same apostle who said he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. This is the same apostle who said what? Pressed in, but not crushed. Well, guess what it sounds like here? Sounds like he's pretty crushed. You notice these words? I was afflicted. We were afflicted, burdened excessively. So what Paul's saying is, hey, on the burden chart, the burden chart, the, 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 the burden chart come up with by night counselors is one to 10. This was off the charts, our burden, excessively burdened. And then Paul says something that strikes us because he's an apostle beyond our strength. Oh, hang on a second, Paul. I read something that you wrote. And I kind of paraphrase it like this. God will never give us more than we can bear. And Paul says, I was burdened excessively beyond my ability to bear it. Guess what you're hearing right in, it, right in this section? You're hearing the erupting emotions of a man who knew what it was to be in the depth of despair, right? And so he uses this language, and then he's got the sense of death in us. It's like everywhere we went, the only way that it seemed like we were going to get out of this is if we just died. But then he says, so that. So that. Purpose statement. You mean to tell me that Paul, going through all of that, then realized that there was a so that in all of that? Do you understand how helpful it is to get people to see that there's a so that in everything that they're going through? Now notice what he's, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril, will deliver us from so, uh, will deliver us. He on whom we've set our hope and he will yet deliver us. And so here's what I want you to see. First of all, Paul ended up being able to see a purpose in the depth of his affliction. And what he saw that purpose was God was teaching him, Paul, you put your hope in me. And his despair turned to confidence. That God would deliver. God delivered and he will deliver. Right? So, how do you go, how do you take a person from despair to hope? How do you take them from that emotional morass of darkness to the idea that there is something that God is doing. Paul said, I remember there was a so that, and the so that is God was actually teaching me not to put confidence in myself, but to hope in God who raises the dead. And I could go on about that for a long time, but I won't. And so, can you help people handle their emotions through truth? You better believe it. You better believe it. Learn how to do it. Learn, learn to diagnose those issues. Learn to bring the word of God to bear on those issues. And um, God help us all be better counselors. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, we thank you that you're not nearly as committed to our convenience as we are. 
And we thank you that you're committed to our holiness and our perseverance. And we pray, Father, that you not only would help us to apply these things to our lives, but give us the wisdom and the aptitude to apply it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.